The text for our message today comes from Revelations 19, 1 through 10. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Again, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you this morning, especially if you're visiting with us here at Grace Community. My name is Jonathan Keenan, and uh, I'm a, a pastor in our denomination, in our local presbytery, serve as the RUF campus minister at the University of Memphis, and um, I have been called um, to fill in for Nathan, who is um, your pastor, who serves here. He's away uh, this weekend, and um, so it's always a joy and a privilege for me to be here. Um, I feel like I'm, I always see familiar faces when I come here, and um, Anytime I get the opportunity to stand before a, a church um, like Grace who supports the work, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for uh, your financial contributions to the work that we do on a college campus. Um, and I, I really mean that when I say we, we cannot do the work that we do uh, without your kindness, your generosity, your prayers. So thank you for all that you do to serve me and my family and the ways in which you have served my students uh, that are students at the University of Memphis. So, thank you. If you do have a Bible, you can turn with me to Revelation 19. It's the passage that we read earlier. I'm not sure if any of you uh, are news junkies like me. Um, I often read many different News sites, I, I like to keep up to date with what's happening in the world for some reason. I, I feel old when I say that. I always used to laugh at my dad when he would be reading things about the news, and I thought that's such a boring topic. But as you get older, you find it fascinating. And it's fascinating because 
The last couple of months, just kind of when you, when you consider the stories that have, that have happened throughout the world, it's, it's been a pretty hard scene to watch and read about. And a couple of months ago, I was in my office and I was, I was reading about the story of Aylan Kurdi. Uh, he was the Syrian boy who, with his family, was fleeing Syria and washed up on the shores of a Turkish beach resort. Incredibly sad story, images that will haunt me for a lifetime. And you read a story like that, and, and you're just reminded that this world that we live in, it's a, it's a really sad place at times. You know, and then the news story broke out about Ashley Madison, you know, and 37 million users have been allured by her strapline, life is short, have an affair. And you, you hear that story, and, and again, you're just reminded that the world that we live in, it can just be a really dark and evil place. And then I came across a story about the, about the New York City Police Commissioner. He'd kind of been hired, and he was quoted recently as saying that that he felt like his job, his, like his most important job right now is to deal with the race problems in police departments, not just in New York City, but across the land, especially for citizens who have been over-policed and under-protected. And again, just this last week, another story of another shooting by a, a police officer, and all the suspicion and all the things that happened behind that, and you just, you're just reminded that the world that we live in, it is just broken relationally. And there's a temptation, like when I sit in my office at, in a very safe place, there's a, there's a temptation on the one hand that when you hear stories like that, when you read those types of, of, of situations that are taking place all across the world, there's a temptation to believe that that stuff is out there. You know? That that stuff out there, it doesn't actually come inside a place like Grace Community. And here's the thing. I know for some of you this morning, you know that life is a sad place because you know what it feels like to lose a child. Like you know what it feels like to lose someone that you love. And I know some of you here this morning, you have walked down the difficult path of adultery, of sexual addiction, and you know how hard it is, and you know how difficult that road is. And I know for some of you here this morning, you know what it feels like to be discriminated against, to be bullied to be made fun of. You know what it feels like to be the recipient of just racist slurs. And here's the thing. The, the long arm of sin and brokenness and evil, it has a... It, it reaches in a place like Grace Community because it reaches inside something that's in all of our hearts. 
And the question is this, like, what do we do with the sadness? What do we do with the darkness? What do we do with the brokenness? And the funny thing was, is I came across an article a couple months ago, and this is, this, there's no political agenda here. Just want to throw this out. But it, the article entitled was, Why Evangelicals Support Donald Trump. <laughs> And I was reminded that we're now in, like, political season, which means that there are going to be, like, we're going to be inundated with politicians and candidates who are going to promise that they have the resources, (laughs) they have what it takes to actually fix what is wrong. Like, they have the resources to actually restore what's been lost. And then I read Revelation 19. And I realize that that there's really only one promise that we can bank on. And there's really only one person that we can actually trust to deliver on that one promise. And his name is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only person who has conquered sin and death. And he's coming back for his bride, whom he loves. And he's the only one who actually can deal with our sadness, our darkness, and our brokenness. And the question is, is why do we need to hear Revelation 19 this morning? And here's what I want to suggest to you. Revelation 19 is a promise for tired, exhausted, broken, bruised, yet incredibly hopeful people. Because the promise that is contained in Revelation 19 will actually begin to address all of the fears that are associated when we come in contact with sadness, with brokenness, with evil. So before we consider this incredible text, let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are kind and that you are generous and that your love is contra-conditional. We thank you that you are forgiving and that you're patient and that your love is incredibly steadfast. We thank you this morning for all that you're doing in our midst, for we know that there are wonderful testimonies like Frank that are happening um, elsewhere, and we thank you that you're a God who is always at work. And we thank you that you are using grace in very specific ways to bring about uh, your glory and your fame. And we do ask, Lord Jesus, you would take uh, your tithes and, and, and these offerings that have been given and you would use them to further your kingdom and to further your name. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this wonderful picture in Revelation 19. And we ask that you, uh, by your Holy Spirit, would give us understanding. And that you would take this promise and you would write it upon all of our hearts. So that when days of, of darkness and sadness and brokenness, when they interfere with us, may this be a promise that we cling to. Because it's a promise about you and your love for your bride. So would you take 
the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if you're unfamiliar with, with Revelation, just let me give some sort of context. Um, John, the Apostle John, he wrote Revelation to seven different congregations. In other words, he wrote this letter to Christians, and these Christians that John wrote to were undergoing all sorts of persecution and, and suffering and just trials, and it was incredibly difficult time for the people of God, especially in whom John is writing to. They were under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And so, if you were a Christian who was a recipient of one of these letters, that meant that you had confessed that Jesus was Lord. And under the rule of a Roman emperor, that was unacceptable, uh, because the only Lord of that time was Caesar, the emperor. And to be a Christian meant that you said, no, Jesus is Lord. And if, and if that was you, the likelihood is, is you would have been martyred or you would have been an outcast. And it was not uncommon to hear stories um, that people were tortured to death because of what they believed concerning Jesus. Some were decapitated, some set on fire, some thrown to wild beasts for entertainment amongst large crowds. And here's the thing, you hear stories like that about you know, John writing to Christians, and, you would, and, and they're being persecuted and martyred for their faith. And, and you would think that things like that that would happen to a particular movement would actually kill it. But it was actually through the, the persecution and the suffering that actually began to... It, it multiplied the church. Like, it grew exponentially. It didn't die, but church history makes it very clear that the church didn't just survive, it actually flourished in persecution. And so the question is this, what happens when following Jesus makes your life harder? Like what, what happens when following Jesus makes your life more difficult, where it actually brings persecution and suffering and hardships? Because here's the thing, you may not be, in, here in Memphis, decapitated for your faith though that is still happening in other parts of the world. But you will have family members who will not agree with you concerning what you believe about Jesus. You will have co-workers. You will have friends who will not agree or believe the things that you believe concerning Jesus. And and it will feel like you're an outsider, an outcast. And they may even make you feel that way to where you will suffer to a degree for your faith. And so the question is this, is why is it worth it? Like why is it worth it when following Jesus makes your life harder? And John's answer is the marriage feast of the Lamb. He says, this is why it's actually worth it. Throughout Scripture, there are many different metaphors for heaven. But one of the dominant images, one of the dominant metaphors for heaven is this idea of a wedding. Or the relationship between a husband 
and a bride, or the bridegroom and the bride. So this, this wedding metaphor, this marriage metaphor, it is just so incredibly dominant. And so John is holding out this wonderful promise that those who trust in Jesus, like this wedding feast, is what's in store for you. And so what I want to do this morning is I, I just want to look at two things. I want to actually look at the feast, and then I want to look at the bridegroom of the feast. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. First, the feast. Revelation 19, what we're getting a picture of is what's in store for all those who have declared that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Like what's in store for those who have put their trust in Jesus, what we have in Revelation 19 is going to be true for you. Heaven absolutely erupts with what is taking place at the marriage feast of the Lamb. So what does heaven see that we actually need to see here this morning? The first is this. You need to understand that the marriage feast of the Lamb first is a party that will never end. It will go on forever and ever. John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the Gospel of John. And if you remember in the Gospel of John, he records Jesus' very first miracle. And Jesus' very first miracle was when he turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And what's so fascinating about that miracle is that John tells us that when Jesus turned water into wine, it actually manifested his glory. So much so that when, when the master of that particular wedding saw that Jesus turned water into wine. And what isn't just any wine? It was the very best wine that you could have possibly had at that time. Probably the best wine that's ever been produced. The master of that feast said, wait, 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 wait. He goes, when we throw parties, we serve the good stuff first so that when everybody has drunk freely, they won't then care with the stuff that we're going to give them next. And that's the poor stuff, the bad stuff. He goes, but you, you have served the very best at the end. And what John says is that what Jesus did there actually manifested his very glory. So what are we getting a picture of? Folks, what we're getting a picture of is that Jesus Christ has come to satisfy and fulfill all of our hunger and thirst. Jesus has actually come to satisfy our hunger and our thirst. The wedding feast that Jesus brings when he comes back for his bride is a feast that will never end. The wine is never going to run out. It's a party that will go on forever. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that you can stop looking at the little feast here on this earth to, to satisfy you. Because the only feast that will ultimately satisfy you is the, is the wedding feast of the Lamb. You can stop looking at the little feast here to satisfy what only that feast will do. Perhaps you think having just a little bit more money might actually bring that satisfaction that you so deeply crave. But have you ever found your heart, like, like when you do get a little bit extra money, you're thinking like, no, that really never did it because I just want 
a little bit more. <laughs> like, I've never gotten to the place where I thought, you know what, I've arrived. I don't need another pay raise. I don't need another check. I'm good with where I'm at. I don't know if anybody's ever gotten there. Because that's, my heart is looking to that to actually satisfy what only the wedding feast will. I mean, perhaps your feast here this morning is comfort. But how much comfort can you actually experience to know true contentment? Or the feast that I often go to is my attempt to get everyone to like me. There are many different feasts that we run to. But what John is showing us is that the feast that Jesus brings on his wedding day is the only feast that will satisfy us. But what it also means is that you can live in this broken and fallen and oftentimes incredibly difficult world and you can still be okay. Throughout Revelation, John has constantly exhorted the Christians to overcome, to endure, to live with and through the brokenness. And here's the thing, I do not in any way make light of this because I know life is hard. And I know some of you, it's been incredibly difficult. But if this marriage feast that Jesus brings is the feast where unending joy and satisfaction is, then it means you can live in this fallen and broken world and be okay. It means that your breakup, it doesn't have to be the death of you. Like you can actually live single and be okay. Because here's the thing, no earthly marriage, even the very best earthly marriage, was never meant to satisfy you. Only Jesus does. It means that if you don't get that promotion, that job that you have so longed for, it means that if you have to work in a very boring and mundane job, you can still be okay. Our work was never meant to be the thing that actually satisfies us. Are we supposed to work? Absolutely. But it was never meant to be the thing that actually feeds my soul. Only Jesus. It actually means that you can live in a very hard marriage. And you can remain faithful. And you can fight tirelessly for your marriage and still be okay. Will it be hard? Absolutely. But if the wedding feast of the Lamb is coming, it means that that is the place where our hearts will finally be at rest, where the party never ends, where the, where the wine is never going to run out, where there will be unending joy and satisfaction because we will finally be with Him, our bridegroom. So what do we learn about the bridegroom? Because actually... What's strange about this text is that this is an important day for him. Like the focus is on the bridegroom, and you know, we've kind of reversed that in our in our ways. That it's always the focus on the bride, right? But Revelation 19, it shows us 
that this wedding face, it's really all about the bridegroom. And what's so fascinating about the bridegroom is this is the culmination of a love story that began way back in Genesis. And it's a love story that none of us would ever consider writing. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus, who is absolutely perfect, absolutely stunning because he is holy and pure and righteous, he could have anyone he wants. And yet he's chosen a bride who is not beautiful, who is not perfect, who is unrighteous, and who is oftentimes unfaithful to where the Scriptures, in her honesty, call the bride a prostitute, a whore. Like Jesus, he could have anyone he wants, and he goes after her. It's a love story none of us would ever consider writing. So what do we actually learn about the bridegroom in Revelation 19 that might actually be some of great encouragement to us this morning? The first is this. The bridegroom, he shows up on his wedding day. Here's the thing. We've given Jesus every reason not to show up on his wedding day. Like We have given Jesus every reason not to show up on his wedding day because we, as the bride of Christ, have sought other lovers. We have been unfaithful. We just sang, and come thou fount, our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love. Like we've given Jesus every reason to not show up, and yet Jesus shows up on his wedding day. He is not late. He does not get cold feet, and he's not up there with his arms crossed, his head down, when he sees his bride coming down the aisle. He's not disappointed. Jesus shows up on his wedding day. Look again at verse 10. John literally commits adultery right in front of the bridegroom. The angel has just announced to John that the marriage feast of the Lamb has come. And what does John do? He looks to the angel and he bows down and he worships the angel. And the angel's like, what are you doing? Do not worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God only. John literally committed adultery right in front of the bridegroom. That's like the bride on her wedding day. Like kissing the best man right in front of the bridegroom. And what's so fascinating about this is that the bridegroom, he shows up on his wedding day because he's come to marry messed up, broken, sinful people and make them his bride. Like he shows up when spouses have just fought tooth and nail even on their way to church. And then they cover it up when they walk through the doors as if everything's okay in their world. He shows up when parents have just been irritated and impatient with their kids. So much so that that irritation, that impatience, it's brought about a certain rage. Jesus shows up when we've lied on our income taxes and been dishonest in our place of work. 
He shows up when we have committed adultery and been addicted to things. He shows up even when He sees us at our very worst. And He shows up to still marry us. The beauty of the gospel love story is that even though we as the bride of Christ give Him every reason to abandon us, He still shows up to marry us. Why? Because He loves you. The Lamb not only arrives, but He comes bearing a gift. The bridegroom comes and He beautifies the bride. Look again at verses 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Jesus comes to make his bride beautiful. Jesus takes all that is impure, all that is ugly, all that is sin, all that is shameful and disgraceful, and he covers it. And he covers it with something that the bride doesn't have. He comes and he covers the bride with a garment, and it is a wedding garment that is pure and spotless and radiant and glorious. And it is that garment that makes her beautiful. And the question is, is what is it? In verse 8 it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for these are the righteous deeds of the saints. And on the, on the surface that sounds somewhat problematic, because if you've been a recipient of Nathan's preaching from this pulpit for any amount of time, you will quickly learn that there is nothing that we offer to God in the gospel. (laughs) God does the work. He's the one who saves us. Salvation is always by grace alone. But this sounds problematic because I thought that the beauty of God's people was always because of what He did for them. And here's the thing, throughout Scripture you see this, that it is God who clothes His people with the garments of salvation. It is always Him who covers us with robes of righteousness. So what you need to understand is that the fine linen that John is talking about, it does involve the actions of the bride. But those actions were always given to her by God. I mean, think about it. Paul in Ephesians 2 tells us that we can't save ourselves. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus alone. But in verse 10, you remember what he says? He says, God has prepared beforehand righteous deeds for us to walk into. Like the fine linen, it does involve the actions of the bride, but those actions have always been given to her by God. Again, in Revelation 21, John says that the wife of the Lamb looks like Jasper. Well, John has already used that expression in Revelation 4 to describe what God is like. He says, God, the one who sits on the throne, looks like Jasper. What is he saying? What John is constantly showing us, and this is a theme that is always throughout Scripture, is that Jesus makes his bride beautiful by sharing his own radiance, his own glory, his own righteousness. Jesus freely gives you righteousness and his beauty to cover you. I don't know if you've ever 
come across the book, uh, Letters to an Unborn Child, written by a guy named David Ireland. David Ireland was was struck with a, a debilitating kind of neurological disease where he became, you know, um, wheelchair bound and it was just, it was a terrible, terrible disease. But right before they kind of diagnosed him with this, this disease, he found out that his wife was pregnant and they pretty much knew that this disease was going to take him out before he was ever going to meet his child. And so he began to write his child letters, hence the title, Letters to an Unborn Child. And there's one chapter where he, he's writing about the child's mother, like his own wife. And he tells a story about all that his wife does for him, especially on date night. And again, remember David, he's in a wheelchair He says, your mother is very special. Few men know what it is like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car, and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it is over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it is all over and finished, with real warmth, she looks at me and she says, Honey, thank you for taking me out on a date. Looks, that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for his bride. He clothes you with his own radiance and his own beauty. And here's what I want you to see this morning, that Jesus comes to every part of your life where there is shame, where there's embarrassment, where there is sin, where there is addiction, where there is ugliness. And he says, you've always been the love of my life. And I will always delight in you. Jesus always looks at his bride, like my good friend Les Newsom says, with honeymoon affection. Because he comes and he clothes you with his own beauty and his own radiance. The lamb not only shows up on his wedding day, but he comes bearing a gift. But lastly, he protects Heaven not only erupts at the wedding day, but it erupts at the destruction of Babylon. Babylon is just a a metaphor, a biblical metaphor for people who've decided to do life without God. It's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis. And heaven erupts at the thought that the smoke of her, the great prostitute of Babylon, goes up forever and ever. And the, I mean, the picture is very graphic. 
Now, I don't know how that lands with some of you this morning. The thought that heaven erupts at the destruction of those who have opposed Jesus and His kingdom. But here's the thing. <laughs> like, Jesus is not going to allow anything to come between Him and His bride on His wedding day. Like, none of you at least if you are in your right mind, would ever invite someone to your wedding day who might disrupt it, who might actually make a mockery of it. Like none of you would ever invite your drunk uncle who could actually destroy your wedding day. Why would it be any different with Jesus? All evil has to go. All sin has to go. All tears have to go. Jesus is not going to allow anything or anyone to come in between him and his bride. He shows up and he gives the bride what she does not have, but then he protects her forever and ever. The smoke of the great prostitute, Babylon, it goes up forever and ever. And heaven rejoices. And here's the thing, we all should long for the day when no more Syrians wash up on the shores of a, of, a, of a Turkish beach resort. like We should long for the day when websites like Ashley Madison are no more. We should long for the day when racism and hatred and injustice are no more. The Lamb comes to protect, and that means that all evil, all sin, all sadness, it has to go. That's what's in store for all those who put their trust in Jesus. So, what can we, what can we do with this? What Revelation 19 is showing us is that God really does want to spend time with you. <laughs> he really does love you. If that wasn't the case, then verse 9 makes absolutely no sense. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. How have the people of God been able to endure and suffer and overcome the brokenness of this world? It's because the invitation of the wedding supper of the Lamb, it's real. It is a real invitation to come to the party that's never going to end. It's a real invitation to come and to be in the arms of the one who has loved you before the foundation of the world. You were invited this morning to the marriage feast where the party's never going to end and you will be with your bridegroom forever and ever. Consider that an invitation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that Jesus loves his bride. And we thank you for that wonderful promise that there is a feast that is coming that will satisfy us finally to where we can be at rest. And we thank you that the bridegroom, he has only ever had eyes for his bride. 
And may that reality, may the truth of Jesus' commitment and faithfulness to His bride, may that actually begin to transform our commitment and our faithfulness to Him. May we love You more today than we did yesterday. And may we long for the day when You come back and You begin to inaugurate Your wedding day to where all evil, all sin, all sadness, it will finally be done away with. May we pray to that end, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.